We'll be in Genesis chapter 37 today. For the next few weeks, I'm going to try something a little different during the preaching time. On my preaching style, which we could either say has been honed by 33 years of experience or stuck in a 33-year-long rut, is known as expository, or in my case, maybe a kind of modified expository preaching. Next few weeks, at the encouragement of a professor or friend of mine, I'm going to try something different. So I hope you'll bear with me. I hope you'll find the change of pace spiritually refreshing. I'm going to preach in a narrative style. Narrative preaching tells a story. It tells God's story, really, but usually through the lens of a biblical character. Narrative preaching is more occupied with themes than it is with points. It tells stories rather than translates terms. Like other kinds of preaching, it has strengths and it has weaknesses. In some ways, narrative preaching requires more of you. The hearer has to put himself into the story. And since the preacher spends less time explaining and more time expressing, the hearer has to think for herself. So this is an experiment for me. For others, it's an established practice. And I invite you to join me in it. We're going to look at the story of God's own story through the lens of the story of Joseph, who's one of the great heroes of biblical history. So I want to read for you chapter 37 and encourage you to read chapters 38 through 50 during the next week. I won't read such an extensive passage again during this series. But today, to get us started, I'd like to read all of chapter 37. You can follow along your Bibles. We'll put it on the screen as well. Jacob lived in the land where, this is not on the screen, where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhan, the son of Zilpah, sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's the name that God gave to Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all's well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? 
He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Don't, let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph wasn't there, he tore his clothes as a sign of remorse and lament. He tore his clothes. He said, He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph's surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Joseph's great-grandfather was an immigrant from the city-state of Ur in what is present-day southern Iraq. Ur was a bustling place 2,000 years before Christ and was the home to this magnificent ziggurat that housed the temple of the moon god Nana. Joseph's great-great-grandfather, Terah, decided for reasons unknown to us to get out of the city. Maybe he thought that his kids were hanging out with the wrong kind of Uh, teens. Maybe he was a country boy at heart, but for whatever reason, he packed up the family and they headed west. Now, Terah died before he got to to Canaan, but his son Abram, Joseph's great-grandpa, kept on going. He was convinced that God had called him to go and that he was going to make a home for his family and his descendants in this new place. During the years that passed, Abraham had two sons by two different wives. The younger of those sons, Isaac, was Joseph's grandfather. Isaac also had two sons by the same wife, and the younger one, Jacob, was Joseph's dad. By the time Joseph came along, his fourth-generation immigrant family was moneyed. They had prestige. They had assets. They also had more than a little baggage. 
there were some embarrassing incidents in their past, some really ugly family rivalries, and plenty of blended family drama. You ever think about the many families that are represented in the Bible? Books full of stories about families, beginning with Adam and Eve and including the family of Jesus, but not even one biblical family, excepting, I guess, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is perfect, not by a long shot. Eugene Peterson put it this way, there are many family stories, there's considerable reference to family life, and there's sound counsel to guide the growth of families, but not a single model family for anyone to look up to in either awe or envy. The biblical material consistently portrays the family not as a Norman Rockwell group beaming in gratitude around a Thanksgiving turkey, but as a series of broken relationships in need of redemption. That's certainly true of Joseph's family. Joseph's dad, Jacob, had children by four different women. That alone would have been cause for conflict, but the fact that his oldest son, to whom special honor was due in that culture, was not born to his favorite wife made things more complicated. His favorite wife, Rachel, wanted a baby terribly, but she was unable to conceive. And over the years, Jacob had other children by these three other women, lots of them, ten of them boys, before Rachel finally gave birth. Joseph was the first child born to her, the woman that Jacob really loved. And Jacob doted on him. The Bible says plainly that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And you can imagine how that went over. Maybe you were raised in that kind of family. So you know what that feels like. The older brothers thought that Joseph was a brat. They certainly thought that their dad spoiled him. They felt like they were treated like slaves. But dad treated Joseph like some kind of prince. And so they hated him. That's the word the Bible uses more than once. They hated him and they couldn't say a kind word to him. Things in that family got really ugly. You'd have thought Jacob would have known better because he was raised in a family where his mom and dad played favorites too, which left the family in tatters. It was no secret that Jacob's dad favored his brother more than him, and that caused bitter conflict. There was a time when his brother hated him so much that he could have killed him, and he came close. His parents' favoritism had ruined his life. He had to leave home, and he didn't come back for years. And when he finally did come back, his mother was already dead, and his father was dying. But though he knew personally the suffering that parental favoritism can cost, he went ahead and made exactly the same mistake. In fact, he showed more pronounced favoritism to his son, Joseph, than his dad ever did to his brother. And in so doing, he almost ruined his family as well. Here's what happened. When Joseph was still a teenager, his dad gave him the famous coat of many colors, or as Andrew Lloyd Webber put it, the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Now, that coat was not just pretty, it was a symbol. If we don't understand that, we won't get the story. It was a symbol of authority. In other words, when Joseph was 17, his dad took him off the floor, so to speak, and promoted him to management. He took him off the clock and gave him a tie and an expense account. And his brothers, all of them older, 
his brothers who were labor hated seeing Joseph in management. And to make it worse, the promotion came after Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. So put yourself in your workplace where you've been for the last 15 years when an employee who's so far below you on the food chain, you can't even remember his name, sends the CEO a letter criticizing the performance in your department. And what does the CEO do? He promotes him to be the head of your department. How would you feel? That's how Joseph's brothers felt. This was just terribly unfair. When I was at the Ford Motor Company doing extremely important jobs like spraying sealer in the wheel wells or applying filler to window joints, the company hired a bunch of young kids right out of college and made some of them supervisors. Uh, There was a guy in our department who was about my age, but he just he walked around like a peacock you know he just strutted and he was important and he tried to act like the boss and the old timers hated him who was this know nothing what behind the ears college brat to be bossing them around well in our story Joseph was the college brat and his brothers were the old timers now at this point none of this is Joseph's fault He wasn't the adult in this relationship. He's just a kid. But what Joseph did next is questionable. He had a couple of dreams in which he was not only the boss of the family business, but the boss of the family, including his mom and dad. Of course, he couldn't help what he dreamt, but the first thing he did was go find his older brothers and tell them his dreams, scene by scene. And then his next dream, and the Bible says, and they hated him all the more because of his dreams and because of what he said. So picture this, Joseph is now in management. His brothers hate him. They hate him on so many different levels. Unlike them, he's no longer working in the fields. He doesn't melt in the hot Palestinian sun, or he doesn't freeze on windswept winter nights. He doesn't have to go through that because he's now in a supervisory capacity. And in that capacity, his dad sends him to check on how the work is going up in Shechem. Shechem is about 50 miles from where the family business is headquartered. So Joseph has maybe a four-day trip ahead of him. When he gets up to Shechem, his brothers are nowhere to be found. He looks everywhere for them, but they're gone, and they left no forwarding address. I can imagine that even while he's looking, Joseph is composing a performance review in his mind that he's going to send to his dad. As he wandered through the hills and the valleys of Shechem, The word translated wandering, see, I can't help myself, but the word translated wandering in the NIV implies being lost. He's not really sure where he is anymore while he's wandering through these fields. He gets turned around. And he never would have found his brothers except that he ran into a stranger who just happened to be out in those same fields and just happened to know that his brothers had moved the operation up to Dothan, which is another 15 miles north. Dothan was rugged country. Joseph never would have thought of looking up there. If it hadn't been for this chance meeting with a stranger, he would have had to turn around and head back home to his dad. But was it a chance meeting? I mean, so far in the Genesis account of Abraham's family, I never realized that until I was preparing for this. Almost every stranger mentioned turns out to be an angel in disguise. Did God send this person to the outlying field simply to point Joseph in the right direction? 
Maybe. You know, we can't be sure, but maybe. But think about what that would mean. Had Joseph not run into this stranger in the countryside of Shechem, who just happened to know where his brothers had gone, he would have been forced to return to Hebron, to home, which means to warmth and acceptance and security. But because he stumbled onto this knowledgeable stranger out in the middle of nowhere, a very different set of events befell Joseph. How many coincidences in your life? And remember, a coincidence is not an accident, but the coincidence of events. How many coincidences have changed your decisions, your direction, and therefore your very self? How many, if it hadn't been for moments, have there been in your life Sometimes launching you onto a path leading towards comfort, sometimes leading toward hardship. Joseph's path was leading towards hardship. Because he found his brothers and because he was wearing the management coat and tie and because of a hundred other things that had happened, Joseph's brothers mistreated him. They took off his management coat and they threw him in a cistern. There were cisterns in these areas that people had dug, they'd often plastered the inside of them, the whole water, because it's a very dry area, that whole water during the month of rainy season. At that time of the year, the cisterns were dry. And so they threw Joseph in there. I can imagine him calling out to them, come on, guys, quit fooling around. Let me out. Then when they did nothing, he said the worst thing he could possibly say, I'm going to tell Dad. And then you're really going to be in trouble. Still, everything would have worked out all right for Joseph, but for one thing. His oldest brother, Reuben, Reuben, by the way, had been in trouble with his dad already, big trouble, but his older brother, Reuben, was determined to protect him. And for some reason, he had to leave for a while. We're not told why. Maybe he went looking for a lost sheep. Another coincidence? Maybe he went to town to buy supplies or meet a lady friend he knew there. We know that Reuben lacked discretion in that area of his life. We can't be sure what happened, but in the hours or days that he was gone, a caravan of Midianite merchants just happened to pass by. Another coincidence. When he saw the caravan, Joseph's half-brother Judah came up with the idea of selling Joseph as a slave to them. Now, I can imagine that he said this jokingly, first of all. We ought to sell that little punk to them. It'd be the first time he's ever worth anything. But the joke became a plan. Now, they get 20 shekels of silver for Joseph, divided 10 ways in a family that was already moneyed. I mean, that was nothing. But it was the principle of the thing. It served the kid right. It served the old man right for treating them so badly. Judah, the one who brings this up, is a guy who's a natural-born leader. He just knew how to phrase things in such a way to get what he wanted. Almost every time Judah appears in Genesis, he's getting his way about something. And it's no different here. With his older brother gone, Judah has no difficulty in talking the rest of the boys into his plan. The Midianite merchants, they jump at the opportunity to buy this kid. I mean, They knew a bargain when they saw one. They could turn around and sell this kid on the slave block in Egypt for twice what they paid for him. So they bought him and headed on their way before the brothers had a chance to change their minds. By the time Reuben got back from town or wherever he was, Joseph was long gone. So put yourself in Joseph's sandals. 
Though a, a slave might not have sandals anymore. They probably took them away from him. Put yourself in his sandals. You're 17 years old. You've just been cruelly betrayed by your brothers, the people who are supposed to love you the most. You know they didn't do it for money. They did it because they can't stand you. They hate your guts. And here you are in a Midianite caravan. You have no control over your circumstances, hardly any over your own body. Your uncertainty over the future is enough to drive you crazy, so you try not to think about it. But what else is there to think about? The past is heartbreaking. The present's unbearable. You're hungry. You're scared. You'll probably never see anyone you know ever again. And you find yourself crying, and you can't stop. Then you start thinking about your life. Mom died when you were just 10. Your stepmom's okay, but it's not the same. You had all these dreams about being somebody, and now you're destined to be a nobody. And you start questioning yourself. Is it your fault? Should you have kept your mouth shut about your dreams? Were you just being a brat when you blew the whistle on your brothers? Maybe you really gave them reason to hate you. Maybe you're a terrible person. At times on that long trip to Egypt, your mind turns to God, and you think about all the things your dad told you about him, how he called your great-grandpa, Abram, and made remarkable promises to him, how he saved your grandpa Isaac from certain death, miraculously gave him a wife, and made the same promises to him. You remember what your dad told you about himself, how he had a dream, and in it God restated his promises to him and then led him to his wife, your mom. Of course, now that you're a slave, you'll probably never have a wife. Maybe God really does care about your family and is going to keep the promises he made to them. But you'll never be part of those promises. You aren't part of the family anymore. But your time for thinking about all of this is interrupted frequently. You're no longer in management. You're part of the labor force now. You have to work for your keep on this caravan. You carry the firewood. You feed the animals. You load and unload the wagons at each stop. You're at the back call and, of, and call of anyone and everyone who needs some dirty little job done they don't want to do themselves. The sweat rolls off of you on 115-degree heat, and day after day, you just wish you could die. You ever wish you could die? Ever thought things were so bad that they couldn't get worse? Ever thought that your life must be the most miserable one on earth? If you have, and I know some of you have, you're not alone. Here's a man celebrated as one of the great heroes of the faith, and I would be surprised if he wasn't thinking exactly those things. When he first arrived in Egypt and saw its glories, he was strangely moved. The statues, the monoliths rising up hundreds of feet in the air, the pyramids were breathtaking. And he had never seen so many people in all his life. In Ramses and Heliopolis and Giza, there were carts and horses. Horses were rare in Canaan. And chariots. And then one day they arrived at a busy market where hundreds, maybe thousands of people were milling about. And to his surprise, he was shackled. He'd been free coming across the desert. There's no place for him to go to. But now he was shackled 
and stripped down and made to stand on a block of marble where he had to turn around and open his mouth and show his teeth like a donkey at a farm auction. And people bid on him. Then an important-looking man made a bid, a bid far below what the Midianite merchants expected. And everyone else stopped bidding. No one dared challenge this particular man to a bidding war. It was understood he was going to win this bid. Money was exchanged. Joseph was unshackled and taken by the wrist in the unyielding grasp of some gigantic slave. Joseph didn't know what would happen next. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how long he would be there. He didn't know if he would suffer harm. He was entering the unknown, and he was afraid. We're going to return to Joseph's story next week. For now, let me remind you of your story. As gifted, as capable as you are, as comfortable or as miserable as you are right now, you don't know what will happen next either, any more than Joseph did. You and I are every bit as much in need of God's help as Joseph was, whether we realize it or not. And let me remind you of something else. We're not just looking at Joseph's story. We're looking at God's story through the lens of Joseph's experience. I'll talk more about that next time. God is writing his story, the story of creation and redemption, of rescue, of sacrifice, story that centers on the Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph was a part of that story, though he didn't know it. And whether you know it or not, so are you. Or you can be. See, the story's still going on. It hasn't reached its epic conclusion yet. You and I, by the magnanimous grace of God, have a role to play in that story. The great thing is Joseph eventually learned, and learned well, is to bring the events of your story into the flow of God's storyline. See, God loves to do that. As the master writer and teacher, he takes the storylines that his bumbling apprentices bring him, and he turns them into scenes in his masterpiece. He is so good at it that he can take anyone's stories, stories of loss and failure, even of wickedness and shame, and he can fit them into his story so that they become meaningful and even beautiful. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, to his storyline. If you bring him your life and invite him to do with it as he pleases, your story will become a comedy in the proper sense of that word. That is, it will have a happy ending. No matter what your storyline is like right now. If you don't, then no matter what your storyline is right now, it ends a tragedy. Those are the only options. Bring your story into God's story. Commit your life to him and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who not only knows the way the story's going, he is the way. And he'll guide you. Now let's pray. God, I ask for grace for us, for people whose storylines right now are just awful. 
And for people whose storylines are just so comfortable that they don't think about anything else, I ask for grace to wake up and bring our stories into your story. For the sake of Jesus, the one that we love and that you love. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing. And as we sing, will the men who are helping with communion come up here and stand in the